Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. Schedule next week. If you would, please open your Bibles today to Ephesians chapter 4. I want to talk about something today that is going to cover two different aspects of the Christian life. One of those is our justification in Christ, um, which is by, by grace. It's, it's the free gift of God. It's not of works because we boast about it. It is what God has done in us to secure our souls, to forgive us of our sins and secure our souls. That's justification. And it's been explained this way throughout the ages. It's just as if we never sinned because we are seen through the perfect, holy, righteous person of Jesus Christ. And this is not something that we worked for. It's not something we bought. It's not something that we angled to get. We were chosen and called by God and given faith and repentance so that we could see our sin as it really is and that we could repent from that and we could put our faith in Jesus Christ. So we can rejoice today. We are justified because of Jesus Christ, because of the, this great work of salvation that God has planned before the foundations of the world, before man was ever created. He had us in mind. And that is a blessing. There's another aspect to the Christian life that we talk a lot about and that we struggle with every day. That's not struggling to say saved, right? That's secure in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You don't earn it, so you can't lose it. It is given to us as a gift. It is secured by the deposit, the guarantee of the Holy Spirit that abides in each one of us. Jesus Christ believers. You may go, well, you know, I know I'm a believer, but I don't always necessarily feel like God dwells in me, that, I'm, that my body is the house of the Lord. I know. I feel the exact same way. But nevertheless, the truth of the matter is, he is in you. And that is a great hope of glory that we have. It secures our salvation. It makes us be able to say, by God's grace, in faith in the name of Jesus Christ, I know I'm going to heaven. The Bible has several passages that state, I'm writing this to you so you can know that you have eternal life. There's a differentiation in the true Orthodox Christian faith, and that is this. We know we're saved, not because our works measure up, but because of the fact that Jesus Christ worked is supreme and glorious and marvelous. It's finished. Hebrews says when he died on the cross, he obtained eternal salvation for us. Isn't that wonderful? So when you feel discouraged or down, or you're thinking, you know, I can't possibly be saved the way I'm thinking right now. Well, we all have that thought from time to time. That topic, though, is a good part of what we're going to discuss today, and that's the issue of sanctification. That is this process that God has ordained that through the power of the Holy Spirit in us, until he returns or until our death, he is making us more and more and more like Jesus Christ. So 
Think about it from a family thing. When we raise our kids, people can cynically say, what are you trying to do, indoctrinate your kids? Of course I'm trying to indoctrinate my kids. Why wouldn't I? The world's going to try to indoctrinate my kids. I've got to beat them to the punch. Okay? If you're working at a company or you have a company and you're trying to, to, to create a culture in your company, you don't let your rival, your competitor, create that culture for you. That would be insane. You work on your own culture. What do you do? You indoctrinate your employees, right? Every company meeting is a rah-rah session no matter what you're talking about. Why is that? Because they're trying to uplift and promote the culture within that business. Just think that's just a business. So when we're born again, we are adopted into the family of God. We are literally considered co-heirs with Christ. We are the brother of Jesus Christ. We are the son. We are a son. We will inherit like a son. And you might be sitting there as a woman going, here's that patriarchy again. Hey, the good news is that applies to everyone, male and female. Everyone in Christ will inherit as a son would back in the ancient days. Now, in my family, a lot of the children are always trying are, are, are angling to make sure they inherit more than the next person. And Pam and I try to assure them, our plan is to spend every dime. And if we can't, we're going to donate a bunch of it just to make sure there's not a penny left. I'm joking. The Bible says that a righteous person leaves an inheritance for their children. So we, we, we know that that's true. I'm only joking. But the point I'm making is this. Don't get confused when you hear sermons or read books and it talks about somebody admonishing you to live a holy life which is living a righteous life. You're doing righteous things as the Bible teaches us to do. Don't confuse that with justification, okay? They're two separate things. Remember, I'm justified through Jesus Christ alone. Repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone, which in of itself, that faith and repentance is a gift of God. That's part of what he gives to us. Sanctification is cooperating with the Holy Spirit, obeying God's word, and choosing to live a holy life. Say, so, that seems so simple. Why are you taking such a long introduction? Because, folks, people get that so confused in their minds. They think, well, I'm saved by God's grace. I could pretty much live any way I want to because it's not of works. Well, maybe they've never heard of sanctification, or maybe they're just choosing to sin. So what I'm going to do is help us be honest with ourselves about what we believe, right? We want to be adults and mature in our thinking. So let's go right to the scriptures and let's see what God's word has to say. By the way, if you need a title, the title of my message today is Differentiation of the Christian Life. Differentiation of the Christian Life. Differentiation is a big business word now. Everyone's trying to differentiate themselves. So differentiation is a process of thinking that helps us gain understanding to compare similarities in light of the most desirable qualities and then choose the most desirable qualities. Those things that differentiate us from the less desirable ones. Are you with me? We do it every day, don't we? Every time you see a commercial, what are they trying to do? Differentiate. They're trying to show you, we're better than brand X. We're brand A. Choose us, 
right? We constantly are seeing that. We're in our closets. We're looking at the clothes. We're saying, what are we going to wear today? Hmm, what's really, not what looks good on me, but what looks best on me for today? We're constantly looking for the most desirable, okay? That's a constant thought process. You say, well, it's an evil process. I really don't think so. It can be. But I think in many respects, God made our brains to think that way, right? So we don't eat the styrofoam that comes out of a box for dinner. We prefer protein, vegetables, and maybe some fruit, right? There's, God wants us, we're constantly seeking the most desirable. It can be sinful, but it doesn't have to be sinful, okay? So think about it that way. And so what we're trying to do today is say, what is different about the Christian life? Is it biblical to say, although I'm a Christian, I'm going to live like the world so the world will see what a wonderful person Christians are and then they'll want to come to our church. We're going to make our church just as if they were going to the theater or going to a play because we want sinners to feel perfectly comfortable. We don't want there to be any very little difference because we want their comfort level to be as high as it can possibly be. We want the desirability of Christianity to be as high as it possibly can be. So they will choose Jesus. Sounds kind of logical, doesn't it? Well, part of that we do, right? So we're doing renovations. Why in the world would we renovate? Well, we would renovate because we want people to know we're serious about what we're doing here. We want people to know we are worshiping a God of perfection. And we can't make our building perfect, but we want to show that we're, we're, we're serious about what we're doing. So there's some value to it. But as they say, those are the hardest, I think it is Spurgeon who said, the hardest thing to judge between is the right and the almost right. The right and the almost right. I'd have to agree with that. Because I'm almost right all the time. At least that's what my family tells me. So the problem is we don't want to be almost right, do we? We want to be right. And so let's go to God's word. Let's begin reading. We're going to read through the end of the chapter. I probably won't spend equal amount of time on each verse, but I want, to see, I want you to see it in the context, okay? So let's begin in verse number four, or verse number one. Ephesians chapter four. I, therefore, a prisoner... Whoop, let me switch over here, guys. Okay. Sorry about that, guys. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave 
the apostles. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way unto him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to the hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God. In true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. What a powerful passage. The whole book of Ephesians, one of my favorite books in the whole Bible. What makes it different living the Christian life? Can we really be saved, that is, justified, but reject sanctification because that makes us too weird? Because the world talks about that as being a Bible thumper. Or you don't understand the real world. There are a lot of pressures put on Christians to stop acting like a Christian. Think about what they did to Jesus. Did they love him because he spoke the truth? 
Did they love the disciples? No. Jesus said, don't be surprised. They hated me. They're going to hate you too. Gets back to that whole issue of what does it actually cost you to be a disciple? It costs you everything. I'm bought with a price. The Lord owns all of my talents, all my time, and all my treasure. A hundred percent of it belongs to him. Now, our God is not an unreasonable God. He knows we have to have houses and clothes, and, and he knows we have to live. He doesn't demand we give all, right? But that's very different than giving a little teeny tiny bit. Part of the thing about being a Christian is you got to wrap your brain around what did Jesus and the disciples do with their lives? What was their life goal? Well, Jesus most definitely was trying to be king over the whole world in his day. Was he really? The New Testament constantly speaks about Jesus intentionally doing things to de-escalate his popularity because his kingdom, as he told Pilate, is not of this world. It's bigger than this world. It's much, much bigger. First thing we want to see as a differentiation in the Christian life is that we're called to a life of serving people and serving our God. It might be said this way, we serve the invisible God by serving one another. By serving one another. There are no religious kings in this church. We're servants. We serve. It's what it really means to do. What does it mean to serve in the church? It means hard work. So if you think about your deacons or your elders or Sunday school teachers or people who are doing VBS or people who are on the SAT team or people that are uh, in the praise team, what does this mean? It means hard work. But it's for your benefit. And it's for the glory of God. We have to adopt that as our thought process, that that's what service is. That's one of the differentiators of being a Christian, is you understand what your calling is. Your calling is not to be self-centered or to pursue your own kingdom. That's not what God's called you to. Now, may not have called you to build a business because God wants you to employ people. That may be part of your calling. Not denying that. But there's a way that you can recognize your calling even in the midst of that. So here's some things. The calling is to serve God as Jesus served. Notice what Paul says in verse, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6 and just pluck out some things here. Notice what he says here. He says uh, in, in chapter 4, he says, a prisoner, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. Not a prisoner of the Roman government. A prisoner for the Lord. Why is he in jail? Why is he being confined? Preaching the gospel ministry. As the the religious elite said, you're trying to put this man's blood on our heads. These men are turning the world upside down. They're disturbing the common order. We've heard that before, right? Does the world like it when we disturb the common order? No, they don't like that very much. Paul's in prison for it. But notice what he says. He's writing to the Ephesians. He's encouraging them. 
and he's reminding them of their calling. And the things that he bears out or points out, I want you to remember these are qualities of Jesus himself. These are qualities that he wants us to emulate. Now, if you have kids, if you're married and you have kids, you remember as you're growing your kids up and they're in that stage where they start talking, you know, I know, the unfortunate period. And they're young and cute and don't talk. It's the best. But then they start talking. So what, what do we do? If you act up when we go over to this dinner party, this is going to happen to you. You remember, you're a part of this family. You represent the family. I want to see exceptional behavior out of you. Okay. Well, we gave that same speech to our sons. Our daughters seem to be very easy for that. That concept of representing the family the female mind goes, totally get it. The male mind thinks the opposite. It means our family's reputation isn't jazzed enough. I'm taking it to the next level. That's the male brain. Why? I don't know. We were at a home group at a church plant we were involved in many years ago, and all of the children got stung, multiple stings, by yellow jackets because our sons threw a giant rock on a yellow jacket nest and both bolted. And the other kids were standing around wondering what's happening. They all got stung. Yeah. Simple request, write your name on your cup so we don't have a lot of cups. So what do they do? Got all the kids to write the names of the host person's son and then threw those cups in the yard. Now it's funny in retrospect, when it's happening at the time, all right, it's kind of funny at the time too, but point is, we don't want that to happen as responsible parents, do we? We want to carry out the right, and those of you that know my sons, Ethan and Calvin, you totally, there's people in this room that remember when they were little and precocious. Now they're big and precocious. So, but what God wants us to do, what are we trying to do when we, as we raise our, kill, our children? You represent the family and the fam, what the family stands for that's what we want you to represent to the world, right? So if you don't have kids, you were a kid. Everybody in here gets that. I'm part of a family, and so I've got to behave in a way that properly represents the family and properly represents what the family stands for, okay? And that's different, right, for every family. So this is what God has called us to do in Jesus Christ. Notice in verses 1 through 6 where he talks about that one of the things is that we're, to, uh, we're called with all humility and gentleness. Is it something we earned? No. Is it something we deserve? No. Jesus was God who came in the body of a man. And what does he say about himself? That he's meek and lowly of heart. Well, what does he want from his family, his, his people. He wants us to be that way too. He wants us to serve people in all humility. And I might point out, you can't serve people without humility. You won't want to. Or if you do, you're only going to want to leverage that for self-importance. It will be about you. It will never will be about them. And you won't like that term servant. Or you won't want it applied in its practical sense. That is, you actually doing the hard work. It is our sin nature pushing back. 
Our sin nature is proud and arrogant and wants the preeminence. But that was not Jesus. What were the disciples arguing about? Remember? Who's going to be the greatest? As Jesus is marching to the cross, they have an argument about who's going to be the greatest. That is the natural man. But God has called us to something different. He's called us to a life of humility and gentleness with patience. He wants us to bear with one another in love. It's really hard to do. The families that stick together are not the perfect families. The families that stick together are rather the families that will work through the disaster in love and say, I don't agree what you did. You've hurt yourself. You've hurt other people. But I love you, and I want us to try to find a way to make this right. I want to help you get back on track, right? That's what families do. They try to get their people They try to keep their people together in love by fostering and, and, and as my wife calls it, tying strings. Especially if you have a, it's easy with smaller children, a lot tougher with adult children. You've got to tie strings to them. They're very busy. Well, what if they don't hear from their dad or their mom in two weeks? You've got to tie strings. Keep the family together. Why? Because it's how we maintain a loving relationship It's how we're able to get past the tough stuff. Well, I disagree with you. Well, I have this opinion. Well, that's not the way I raised you. But if you still love one another and you're patient, you can think back to when you were young and when your faith was weak and you can see that God, it took me a while for my faith to develop and grow. And it may take a while for their faith to develop and grow. You love them. You're you're eager to serve them. And you're patient. Patience is so important in this concept of loving one another. Bearing with one another in love. We're able to bear difficulty because love exists. It already exists. I think it's a wonderful thing when God takes us through a trial and we get to see the love of the people in our lives reflecting back on us. Isn't that that rich? It's one thing for people to say, oh, we just love you. It's another thing to watch it in action. Boots on the ground. So in the midst of a crisis, in the midst of, of, of something that could be considered destructive, we see the grace and mercy of God in the love of the people of Jesus Christ. It's what God wants for us. I'm proud to say that I'm a part of a family right here that I believe where that already exists. And I've even seen examples of it this week. People loving people enough to sacrifice their time and their talents and their treasure to serve someone else. That's the real love of God. That's the real deal. We are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Don't you just love that? God is good that he's given us a Spirit as a guarantee for the rest of this gift that's coming. And the likening here where it uses the language of talking about um, 
in verse number four, it's not so much trying to state a, a theological uh, a directive, right? As much as it is just stating this is what reality is. The reality is there's one body, there's one spirit, there's one hope, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. This is not ecumenicism. It's just simply saying this. Everyone in here that's naming the name of Christ that holds to the truth of the gospel, we have the same Holy Spirit. We serve the same Lord. How are we going to argue with one another and how are we going to have sustain uh, anger or resentment against one another? That is not what we've been called to do. We We are different in that God wants us to act different. He wants us to love one another, bear with one another. What's the result? The result is a people that are able to move forward and act as if they were acting in the place of Jesus. Ministering to people with the hands of Jesus. I think it's a wonderful thing that as we look into Ephesians, that we we can remember that God's grace is given to, to each one of us. So we're not only called to a life of serving God, and people, we're divinely equipped individually to function as a unit. Now, I've never served in the military, um, but I know there's men and women in this room that have. And you understand this concept of functioning as a unit. People are trained individually that have specific skill sets that in and of themselves are quite fantastic. But when you interlace these together into a planned unit, it is a massive force multiplier. Why do American special forces, why are they are so overwhelmingly effective in what they do? It is the way that they function. They function as a unit, as one. They carry out one purpose, and it's much more powerful than having random people out there that are just kind of doing their best. Everybody has a role. Everybody is functioning perfectly in that role, cognizant of the fact that they're functioning as a unit. Well, that's exactly how God created and designed the church. He designed us to function as a unit. So when you see the scriptures teach in seven, and in, in, as he talks about uh, in seven and following, he talks about this concept that, that God has given grace to each one of us, and he says, according to the measure of Christ's gifts. And then he, he, he helps us understand that Christ's ascendance into heaven is, can't happen unless he descended. Christ descended upon the earth, and there's a there's several points of view here. He said, well, is this referring to Christ, his, 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 his work on the cross and, and him, him preaching in, in, uh, in hell to, to the prisoners or, or unleashing or unshackling the prisoners through his grace, through his salvation? I think it could be all those things, but I think there's something else here that's trying to be conveyed, and that is that of a conquering king. It is true of a conquering king that when he would come, back to the city that he would come bearing gifts. Many of these gifts were given to these warriors and many of these gifts were given to those that supported his campaign. 
those that were loyal to his kingdom. God gives us gifts before we do anything. Let that sink in. We haven't supported him. He saved us as his enemies. And along with him saving us, not only did he give us the gift of grace, he gave us spiritual gifts. And he not only gave us spiritual gifts, he didn't just like toss them out there, you know, like, the, like you know, you hit the, what's the, the, you know, the stuff thing that's full of candy, the pinata, and the candy goes everywhere, and then the kids go into this wild dive, and one kid gets a black eye, and it's just like chaos, right? No, that's not what, that's not how he's designed it. He's designed the church where he specifically gives gifts. And do we not see that when we come in? There's people that have musical gifts, gifts of leading us to worship. There are people that have other gifts, technical gifts that are helping with the sound. There are people that are greeting us that have gifts of hospitality. There are people that speak to you, that, that, that teach you, that pray for you. What are we doing? Are, are, are we, these gifts did not come from the flesh. These are gifts God gives us. We can't take pride in them. We can't say, well, I, this, that, or the other better than anybody. No, they were given to us. They're gifts given to us from our king. So what are you supposed to do with them? Well, I'm a firm believer in just never using my gift because you never know when I might need it down the road. Nope, we know that's not how God wants us to serve, right? He wants us to put that gift into action. Into action. Because the more gifts that we have in action, but still functioning as a unit, right? So the gift is not, I think I should be doing this, irrespective of what the rest of the unit thinks. That's not the way he designed it. It's functioning as a unit. So if you have a servant's heart, it's like you have to almost kind of work to make sure someone's the boss. We pick Greg. (laughs) Greg's great at keeping things the direction they need to go in. You have to have somebody administrating. But quite frankly, when you're in a church, you want to function as a unit, so you have to have literal leadership, right? But they don't think with they don't think like the world thinks, like they're lording it over people. I've known some of you in this room for over a decade. And I love you like family. And there's newer people that I've met that I've just absolutely fallen in love with as well because you're wonderful servants of the Lord Jesus. And if you're new and I haven't gotten to know you yet, let yourself be known. I want to be known and I want to know you. And the more we get to know one another, the more we're going to be able to understand this issue of using our gifts. So all gifts are due to God's grace. So we we talked about that. I want you to look at um, Psalm 68. Turn to Psalm 68. And look at verse number 18. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. That's what I'm referring to. 
Our God is great. Did, did your heart, as, you know, as, as Brother Harlan said, my heart just flutters every time I, I hear that chorus, that behold, our God. I just I fight back to tears. It's just we serve an incredible God, the creator of the world who loved us and saved us. This concept of serving is unique to Christians because the world is lost. They want to be their own God. This amassing of materialism. Why is materialism such a draw? The stuff isn't even all that great. I mean, after you've had a big house, is a bigger one really all that much of a buzz to you? I understand. We were, we were born poor. Pam and I would laugh about it. Our, our honeymoon was $30 at a restaurant in Mar- downtown Marietta. Second floor restaurant, too. He said, Good grief, you're very unromantic. Didn't you prepare for that? I was a poor college student, but boy, I was in love with her. I wasn't going to let her get away from me. So I married her. And she foolishly married me knowing that I was poor. But I think she thought I had some potential. So what we want to do in this life is we want to remember who Jesus is. Remember who we're serving. We serve one another, but we serve in light of our Lord Jesus, the creator the, the, the one that saved us from our sins. The one that, as the scripture points out in Psalms, gave gifts to us, even, even at the point of us being saved. How are you going to use your gifts? They're all due to God's grace. The greatest gift is God himself through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 so that we get a little flavor of the book itself. Ephesians chapter 2, let's look at verse number 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Guys, don't be confused. Salvation justification, okay? God dealing with our sin, dealing with our our place as sinners in needing punishment. That was dealt with without us paying a cent. He dealt with that by calling us to himself. That's dealt with. But he did not save us to then live any way we choose. He saved us put the Holy Spirit in us, gave us his word, gave us each other. And he said, go do my work. You are my servants. You got to deal with that. Who do you belong to? Your life is not your own. My life is not my own. We've been bought with a price. We should therefore glorify God in our bodies. God's plan I'm sorry. Let's look at verse uh, chapter number 3 and look at verses 16 through 21. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit, through his Spirit, in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we, all, than we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church. Guys, God's plan is himself the greatest gift that he's given us. And secondly, God's plan is interdependent to fulfill its purpose. We, he, he made it interdependent. He made us to depend on one another. He didn't give us all the gifts, did he? We were laughing about that the other day, about musical capability. That's not my gift. I can't I have nothing to offer other than singing from a full heart. I can't, that's it. All these gifts are due from God's grace. They're not given for us to sit on. I want that to really sink in. You coming to church, please don't take this the wrong way. You or me coming to church and sitting is not the sum total of what God has for your life. It's just not. He's called you to become a servant, to serve on a unit with the gifts that he's given you, and he has given you gifts. You need to find out what they are. So how do you do that? Do I take a test? Nope. You just go up to somebody and say, hey, I don't know what to serve. I don't know how I can serve, but I'm willing to serve. Call me the next time something needs to be done. And let's talk about it. Put yourself out there. Make yourself available. And it's not just inside the walls of the church, is it? We saw this with, with uh, some brothers and sisters this week. As, as they were ministering to their small group, they also had someone who really never, ever came to their small group. But they reached out to them and ministered to them. That's somebody outside the walls of the church. That's what God wants us to do. He equips us for the work. The purpose of the work is to build the body. We see that in verse number 13, chapter 4. We're to continue doing this until we fully understand and obtain the knowledge of God, maturity. We're to keep serving in this manner. We're to keep active. We're to stay engaged with the unit. We're to, remember, we're to be long-suffering in how we forgive one another. And God promises the fullness of Christ, truth and love. I love verses 15 through 16 where it talks about each part clinging to the other part. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the church, of God's people loving one another, forgiving one another when they say or do something stupid, and they continue to love, and they just cling together, just like your joints are just held together by all that sinew and tissue that your arms and legs just don't fall off. My fingers just don't fall off my hand. It's all held together. We're all held together with the spirit of God and with the love that God's put inside of us. What is the result? The result is when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow and we are all built up in love. The concept of belonging that the world wants to attain for itself without God is not possible because of the sin nature. It is possible for the Christians because we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. I can't flesh this point out, but I want to encourage you to do that because we're running out of time. But the third thing is holiness. 
is God's gracious design for every Christian. Every, every Christian is to live a holy life. If you've never really done a study of holiness, I want you to buy this book. This book is called Holiness by J.C. Ryle. It is a wonderful book. If you don't have this in your library, you should get it. Holiness by J.C. Ryle. He will also touch on this issue of justification and sanctification. It's a great job uh, of separating these two and helping us understand what that means. And what does it mean to live a life of good works according to what the Bible teaches? You're not earning your salvation. Holiness is us becoming more and more like Christ as he has commanded us to. Not to be saved because we're representing the family. Just think about holiness that way. I'm representing the family. Can I live a worldly, sinful life and represent the family properly? We can't do that. So holiness is going to help flesh out the futility of materialism. It helps us understand the reason why we don't live a a, a holy life is because of hard-heartedness. The warning, you can't go live like you used to live, like the unbelievers. They're hard-hearted. You can't say, I want to be like the world so they'll feel welcome in the church. No, that's not what they need. They need to see Jesus in you. They need to see that you belong to the family, that you have those traits that Jesus has. They need to see that in you and me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. I wish I could talk some more on this this issue of holiness, but maybe we'll have time to do that at another occasion. I encourage you to read Ephesians chapter, the entire book. It's a wonderful book. Slow yourself down. Take it pieces at a time. And just remember, God has called the Christian life not to be like the world to attract the world, but it's to be the complete opposite of the world to attract the world as God calls people to himself. We are to be different. And if that means suffering for being different, that's exactly what God's called us to because there's meaning in it and there's grace that accompanies that. So I encourage you, don't be discouraged. Don't be afraid. Don't be timid. If you say, well, you know, my life just seems, my spiritual life just seems stagnated right now. Get in the word. Get off the internet. Turn the TV off. Get in the word of God in the morning and in the evening read and meditate on it. Determine your, for yourself, you're going to read through the Bible this year. You're going to read in the next 12 months, you're going to read the entire Bible for yourself without commentaries. Just read it. You got to do that. You got to know what's in the Bible. You got to know it. Commentaries are wonderful, but you got to read it all first so that you have a backdrop as you begin to study it deeper. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful that you love us that you've saved us by no cause of our own. As a matter of fact, we were your enemies. You saved us and called us for good works. You gave us a family that we could work together in. You gave us gifts to be used together as a unit. Your greatest gift to us is Jesus. Lord, may we live a life that's holy. 
May others see Jesus in us. May we be, as the, as the apostle said, a living epistle. A living example of the word of God. A living example of our Lord. Help us to love one another. Lord, help us not to look for perfection. Help us to look for patience. Help us to look for humility and a loving kindness and a forbearance. Help us to stay together as a family. So easy to just leave. That is not what you've called us to do. God, help us to love one another from the heart earnestly. Lord, may we cling to that. 